This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. The watchword of the term for me is arrogance. This is the norm that we have allowed to be created around this Supreme Court, that it is hands off, that they are not accountable. These are not a random set of cases that the justices are deciding. A court that it's really putting itself at the center of American governance and making itself not simply a court of last resort for people, but the final decision maker in the American system. This is a profoundly arrogant institution. Hey, and welcome back to Amicus for the last episode of the 2022 Supreme Court term. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate, along with Mark Joseph Stern, who is joining me for this episode of our storied Supreme Court breakfast table, where we sit down with a bunch of transcendently smart court watchers to try to make some sense of the entire term that has just wrapped. Hi, Mark. Hi, Dahlia. And as with all of our Opinion Palooza shows this past month, this episode will be available to all listeners thanks to the generous support of Slate Plus members who usually get the bonus content we've been bringing to you all to themselves. Slate Plus members will have access to a behind the velvet rope, ties loosen, cigars and cognac conversation between me and Mark Stern later in this show. But for now, we just want to thank our Slate Plus members for their support. And to mention that if you'd like to join Slate Plus, you can always find out more at slate.com slash amicus plus. But first, joining us for this year's What Did It All Signify show are three incredibly sharp thinkers and analysts. Jamel Bowie, our former Slate colleague who writes brilliantly uh, for the New York Times opinion section. Sherilyn Eiffel, former president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, newly appointed head of Howard University's inaugural Vernon E. Jordan Jr. Esquire Endowed Chair in Civil Rights. And Professor Steve Vladek, University of Texas law professor and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. So I want to thank all of you for being here with Mark and I to chew over the term after the term that blew all our minds. And I thought maybe we could start with just top line reflections from each of you about big themes around judicial supremacy, states' rights, race, education, agency powers. What does each of you clock as a unifying through line, if one exists, about this past term? And how do you connect it to, I think, the national earthquake that was the term before? Sherilyn, maybe we'll start with you. Thanks so much, Dahlia. I have so many thoughts rushing through my head that it's hard to pick which one. Um, but I think, you know, as a, as a top line, it is um, calling me back to the very first opening session of the Biden Supreme Court Commission. And at that time, as you all may recall, we had testimony from different experts and people submitted testimony and so forth. And Nico Bowie testified first, I think. 
And he offered an incredibly powerful, important, and scathing account of the Supreme Court's kind of counter-democracy role over the course of its existence. And he started out by putting a pin in and popping the balloon of, you know, the Supreme Court is the place of last resort that has brought us to a more perfect union. And I remember a number of my colleagues on the commission seemed quite shaken, or maybe some were offended. There was no doubt that everything that he was saying was true. And yet we were doing this task of performing on this commission without seriously engaging the charge that he was making. And that charge was entirely accurate. And I think we see it this year. Obviously, this was a devastating term, but I think really important for our maturation as a democracy in understanding that things are out of balance. And although we have known that with the presidency and with Congress, I think it's time for us to take a very close look at the way in which we have allowed the mythology of the Supreme Court to set it on top of our democracy as opposed to being within our democracy and part of it. And I think this term best exemplifies that. I think it's a historic term. I think it's a term that will define the Roberts Court. And I don't think it's the kind of definition that he anticipated or wanted when he took the job. How about you, Steve? What's your, if you have a big animating universal take, what is it? I'm going to pick a slightly provocative word, but the more I think about it, the better I think it is. The watchword of the term for me is arrogance. This is a profoundly arrogant institution. And I mean that in multiple respects. Arrogant from the sense of, you know, sort of picking and choosing the cases it wants in ways that are not necessarily advancing what the lower courts need, as opposed to the agendas of the justices. Arrogant in the sense of handing down decisions in major cases that really are punts, making you wonder why they took the case in the first place. Like, what was the point of granting cert in Moore versus Harper if that was the decision we were going to get out of the court? And I know we'll get back to that. Arrogance in sort of turning its back collectively and individually on even the whiff of the idea that it ought to be accountable as an institution and the justices ought to be accountable. Chief Justice Roberts' letter in response to Chairman Durbin's invitation to testify, I think, is actually one of the more important single documents of the term. And arrogance in the sense that, you know, the chief's majority opinion in the student loan case and how it closes, I think, is really the bow on the tree of arrogance because it's like, we are allowed to disagree with each other without you guys telling us that we are somehow undermining the institutional arrangements that guide our country. Never mind that it was the same John Roberts who wrote a similar dissent in Obergefell in 2015. So I, I just I can't get over the arrogance of both the court as a whole and the justices in the majority for the most part. And Dahlia, and I think what's related to that is I think that arrogance is a lot more visible now. So that end-of-term recaps have been remarkably nuanced, you know, with a couple of exceptions, and remarkably, I think, um, skeptical of what might have, as recently as three or four years ago, been the conventional, look, they're not that conservative, look, it wasn't that bad, you know, like all those takes now are getting the kind of scrutiny that I don't remember them getting not so long ago. And so I think it's arrogance that is increasingly being seen as such. Jamel, what's your... If you, to the extent you have a way of looking at this term as a block of something, what is it? 
No, my view is very similar to Steve's that not only is this an arrogant court, and I want to, I want to double down on the observation that Roberts's letter to Congress is just one of the most important documents, I think, not just of this past year, but like in recent political history, it really marks a, a, a break with what are supposed to be at least, uh, I hate I hate this word, uh, constitutional norms, right? There's no rule that says the chief justice or any justice has to go before Congress. But generally speaking, when the chief representative body of the American public asks you to come like talk for a second, you're supposed to go talk. It's sort of, it's a recognition of not just separation of powers, but a recognition of the role, the proper role of each institution in the American political system. So Roberts essentially saying, yeah, no thanks, I don't want to, is uh, I, I think quite significant. So there's the arrogance, and I, I think the, the arrogance serves a, a particular you know ideological purpose that I think you see across this term, which is not just the court or the majority of the court pursuing really its kind of policy interest, but also sort of disparaging other parts of government and their ability to make decisions and their ability to interpret the Constitution, and then also arrogating power to itself, right? Sort of taking decisions out of the hands of other branches, other agencies, other courts, and then saying, well, we're going to decide. This is what was so striking about Moore v. Harper, right? That at the end of that opinion, Roberts is like, well, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to decide, which is a new thing, which is a new development. And it is Roberts, I think, pursuing this larger project of not just having a a court that's willing to overturn past precedents and, uh, again, sort of like pursue an ideological agenda, but a court that it's really putting itself at the center of American governance and making itself not not at simply a court of last resort for people, but sort of the final decision maker in the American system. And doing that with quite a degree of discretion. No one can tell me that if President Trump had pursued the student loan forgiveness program, that the Roberts Court would have said, you can't do that. We all know that's not the case, that the major, the quote-unquote major questions doctrine would have never come up. So it's, it's exercising discretion, but the mere exercise of discretion in that way is also a way of simply stating to the entire political system that at the end of the day, we are the ones who really do count and really do matter. And we cannot trust you to do anything correctly without our ultimate assent, which is just like a fundamental inversion of the American political system, a fundamental inversion of what is supposed to be self-government and popular sovereignty. It really is, uh, what, what did Lincoln call it, you know, government by tribunal. And I mean, you know, to that point, Jamel, uh, of course, the administration that first imposed a pause on student loans was not President Biden's, but President Trump's. Uh, And the language in John Roberts' opinion strongly suggests, at least to me, that that pause is highly dubious, if not plainly illegal. But Roberts pins all of the lawbreaking on Biden and the Biden administration, which I think tells us a whole lot about which administrations get the benefit of the doubt and the assumption of legitimacy from this court and which administrations don't. Um, while we're still on 
big picture stuff, I, I was curious, you know, the story of the 2021-2022 term was very much John Roberts has lost his court. And I'm curious uh, what you guys think the the story of this term was. Did John Roberts get his court back? This is Sherilyn. I definitely think he flexed a bit, but I think the mistake was in people thinking that the results that the court was producing in the last term were somehow inconsistent with with what John Roberts believes. We've known what his worldview is for some time. And yes, I think that he would like to go about some of these major shifts in a more careful way so as not to invite the kind of scrutiny and scorn that has been invited. But the outcome would still ultimately be the same. His aims are the same in many ways. And I just wanted to respond because I think it's it's really important to the charge of, you know, Roberts and the letter and 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 kind of violating norms. Because I think we have to really deal with the fact that this was the term that the chickens came home to roost. The norm is for us to let the Supreme Court do whatever they want to do. He didn't violate the norm. That's the norm we have allowed to go forth. We have to go all the way back to like Abe Fortas to <laughs> to actually look at, you know, where some um, aggressive action was taken around a Supreme Court justice engaged in potentially unethical conduct or conflicts. But, you know, Justice Scalia died at a hunting lodge. <laughs> you know, we had the Dick Cheney duck, you know, a hunting trip. We've known about some of these uh, activities with Justice Thomas. We've certainly known about the activities of his wife. And there has been no action to try to compel the court to rein itself in. I've been writing about this for 30 years, about the appearance of impartiality. We had a whole bunch of potential conflicts in Bush versus Gore. This is the norm that we have allowed to be created around this Supreme Court, that it is hands off, that they are not accountable, um, that they, you know, when was the last time we asked a Supreme Court justice to come and talk about their internal workings? So I think Roberts was being consistent with the norm that has surrounded the court, at least certainly as long as I've been practicing, in which we don't bother them. It's like when I hear people now talk about, wait, 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 Justice Rehnquist, there were allegations that he was a vote suppressor? Yes, <laughs> yes, there were. There was sworn testimony by very credible people that he had been engaged in that activity. And that came out at his confirmation hearing to be chief, but we just moved past it. So I think we have to recognize that Congress, when I talk about being out of balance, has allowed the court to go forth in this way, has not probed when a justice tells us about balls and strikes or that they strip down like a runner. There's no follow-up question. Like, how does one do that? What does that mean? You know, we have allowed this. And so I think we're not going to see a change until we reset a norm. But we can't pretend that Roberts is somehow running through the gates. We opened the gates and the whole court is running through it. What you just said, Sherilyn, is, of course, kind of the bulk of Steve's new book, you know, that we have invited this wild imbalance and this wildly monarchic court. And Steve, I, I guess I want to give you a chance to answer Mark's question, which is, you know, last term, there was just this like, womp, womp, you know, John Roberts, you know, dissents with uh, the dissenters, and it doesn't matter. This is, you know, Thomas's time, this is Alito's time. That's just clearly not the story this year. I think uh, you and others have suggested that's because 
maybe it's just Mark and I who suggested that that's um, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett moderating their conduct. But I wonder if you want to sort of answer, I think, some version of Mark's question. Does that mean that the 333 court is now ascendant? Or does that mean that John Roberts was smart enough to take control back? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I do think that reports of the demise of the 333 court have been greatly exaggerated. And the problem that I think we're spending a lot more time talking about now, which makes me so grateful, is that these are not a random set of cases that the justices are deciding. And so if the court is granting cert to slap down the Fifth Circuit for letting Ken Paxton do something crazy bananas, even by this court standard, right, that's just a participation trophy. I mean, that is not some massive rebuke. And part of how we know that is because when the Fifth Circuit gets slapped down, there's never the kind of language we saw in the past when the court was mad at the Sixth Circuit or the Ninth Circuit, right? It's just, oh, you know, you were just totally wrong about why Texas has standing in any of these cases, so I, I guess, Dahlia, to me, it's it's both. I mean, I, I'm intrigued by how many of the big decisions this term, the chief assigned to himself, which strikes me as, you know, just as possibly the chief desperately trying to hold on to control as it does a sort of subtle reassertion of control. But I actually think there's a difference in, to me, some of the valence of the cases from this term versus last term. Like last term, you had a lot of red meat for the conservative legal movement and red meat that did not necessarily divide the sort of the Bush era conservative legal movement from the Trump era conservative legal movement. And I think this term, that was a little different. I mean, going all the way after ICWA, you know, I think was more a sort of Trump era agenda item going after the Biden administration's enforcement discretion in immigration cases, right? That, you know, Bush did that too. So I think, you know, it's not surprising to me that the chief and Barrett and Kavanaugh are going to be not in the same place as Thomas Alito and Gorsuch when you have a split between the Bush era legal movement agenda items and the, and the Trump era ones. And in that context, especially, the chief is going to have a lot of power because he's going to be building coalitions between Kavanaugh and Barrett on the one hand, and Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson on the other. To me, then the question becomes, should the Democratic appointees actually be pushing back harder? That might seem like a strange thing to say in light of the dissents that we got in the affirmative action case and through it through creative in the student loan case. But no one wrote separately in Moore versus Harper, right? The three Democratic appointees signed on to the idea that there are going to be cases in which federal courts can say, hey, state courts, you know, you violate the federal constitution in federal elections. So I guess to me, Dahlia, it's not that anyone has changed that much. It's that the shape of the docket this term produced different results than the shape of the docket last term. Jamel, before we get off the chief, are there any final thoughts you want to add? You know, I think that's right. And I, I think I'd maybe add, and this is kind of getting into the psychology of the justices, right? But I do think that the sheer ferocity of the backlash to Dobbs and to a lesser extent Bruin did at least chasing Kavanaugh and Barrett. I think it probably vindicated Robert, sort of like, listen, this is why I want to do things the way I want to do things. But I think that for at least Kavanaugh and Barrett, it seems it might have been like, listen, hey, maybe Roberts has a point about a more slow-moving approach to achieving our goals. Uh, maybe that's a better way to go about things than simply ripping off the Band-Aid. Because as it stands, right, the court's Standing with the public has declined significantly. Even now, it's sort of at its lowest points. And there is 
an actual kernel of a movement for court reform among elected officials that just didn't exist prior to Dobbs. And so given the amount of force it takes to produce something like that in political life, right, and given that Dobbs apparently produced that force, it would not surprise me to learn that at least you know, two members of the court were, again, used the word again, chastened by the reaction and by the midterm results, frankly, right? Sort of by, by everything that transpired after Dobbs. I, I, I might um, frost that with the note that I, I think that it's not an accident, Jamel, that it's Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito who are caught up in the ethics scandals, you know, the, the ethics questions raised around, you know, John Roberts' wife or Gorsuch's land sale or, you know, whatever, um, Justice Barrett's uh, husband's, you know, law firm are lesser. And there's a way in which, in addition to sort of pinging off Dobbs and the enormity of what happened last term, I think pinging off the kind of own the libs response to uh, the, the very serious charges against Thomas and Alito might have created at least some incentive to, to make a little distance, at least from, from Kavanaugh and Barrett. We're going to pause now to hear from some of our great sponsors. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. More now with our all-hits, no-filler, amicus breakfast table episode, wrapping up this Supreme Court term. I, I want to talk about race for one quick minute because I remember starting this term saying that, you know, last year, I think this is a version of what you just said, Steve, about how there were different kind of class of cases that last year, the court, you know, knocked abortion and guns and religion off the bucket list, you know, with huge swings. And this year, it felt to me they were just going to do it for race. And whether, you know, colorblind 14th Amendment meant that ICWA falls or Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act falls or affirmative action falls, this was the term where they went big on race. And I sort of wonder how much that was borne out and whether, just to Steve's point, there's something about going huge on the 14th Amendment or huge on the idea of perfect colorblindness that in itself led some some of the justices to blink this term, and maybe we can start with Jamal. Uh, I don't. I mean, I don't know. My sense, just you know, thinking of the politics of it all, um, that clearly with the Section Two case, clearly Roberts and 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 the majority Roberts, I'm guessing in particular, was 
trying to sort of like hold his fire for other decisions. I think I think it was probably a given that affirmative action was going to go and that was going to be, you know, that's a major reversal of a precedent. And so not also fully gutting the Voting Rights Act seems like a strategic political choice more than any change in, in, in principle or ideology or, or anything. I think that, again, Seeing the the political consequences of taking big swings on questions of privacy and bodily autonomy, of really kind of gutting constitutional protection of both, and seeing the kind of um, backlash that engendered almost certainly shaped the choices in this term. Also, the recognition, I mean, when you look at the cases dealing with race, you know, Americans don't have any firm opinions on the Voting Rights Act, but they have warm feelings towards the civil rights movement. And it's not particularly hard politically to connect an attack on the Voting Rights Act to that. The Indian Child Welfare Act, again, the public doesn't have any particular views on that. But it wouldn't be too hard to tell a story to the public about, hey, the Supreme Court wants to make it easier to kidnap Indian children, right? Um, that's probably a little what's probably a little inflammatory, but you see what I'm saying. But with affirmative action, that is a place where the public is actually quite divided, right? That's a place where um, there is no, where the public has views, there's no particular consensus, and if anything, the public is more inclined to oppose it than it is to support it. And so the court taking an ambitious swing at affirmative action, again, makes political sense if what you want to do is advance this understanding of a colorblind constitution, but you want to do so in a manner that doesn't quite put you in the political crosshairs. Because plenty of Americans um, of total you know, goodwill and good faith disagree with affirmative action, and it's a decision that a lot of people can live with, even people who disagree with it can live with it. So to my mind, the decisions on race might be most reflective of like the strategic political decision making of at least, you know, three of the members of the court. I want to pick up on that and Sherilyn note something you wrote about Brown versus Board of Education and how this majority has sort of weaponized Brown versus Board and transformed it to mean something that is not in the actual opinion and used it to promote a kind of anti-equality project. Can you talk a little bit about like how the court has pulled off this trick and what it says about how this particular majority uses precedent to its favor? I like to believe they haven't quite pulled it off, but they certainly are um, working <laughs> working hard at it. You know, there is, um, you know, something called canon, as we know, right? Those cases that are considered kind of, you know, untouchable, that everyone recognizes are cases that are either beyond the pale in, in you know, the decisions of the court, like Dred Scott, and cases that no one would say that they were, you know, incorrectly decided. And of course, Brown is one of them. And for good reason, it, you know, literally changed the direction of our democracy in the middle of the 20th century, for sure. And, you know, represented our profession, I think, and the court maybe at its kind of highest moment. And so there are consequences, I think, for lawyers across the board who would in any way seek to directly undermine Brown. I think that's the reason why Justice Rehnquist, for example, offered his fairly incredible account of the memo he wrote as a clerk when the Brown case was before the court, because I don't no one wants to own up to at any point not agreeing with Brown. But the project that is happening now is precisely what you described is a weaponization of Brown. It's a discovery that it can be used. It can be hollowed out 
in substance. CEG parents involved, right? The, the case involving voluntary desegregation efforts in, in K through 12 schools. You can take on all of the cases that essentially hollow out the vision of Brown and still use the outside shell as a way to cover your action. So for Justice Alito, the refrain, and I've heard this in a million rooms and meetings about overturning Roe is, but, you know, don't you think that Plessy should have been overturned? Doesn't Brown constitute the principle that, you know, stare decisis sometimes has to be upended in service of the greater good? So Brown can be used in that way. And then we see in this affirmative action decision, Brown being used for this idea of colorblindness. And what we see is Roberts doing this cherry picking of quotes to suggest that Brown stands for the principle that we must never see race. And this is where I feel like, you know, we kind of misread him on balls and strikes. Like what he was saying is, I'm going to do law like math and I'm not able to, and, and, and I'm going to say able because I'm not sure he is able to actually apply context to the concepts that I'm dealing with. I'm going to just pick the words out and this is what they say and therefore this is what they mean. And so stripping Brown of its context, stripping Brown of its, I mean, part of the decision that's so powerful is that it is a contextual decision because separate but equal to many people sounds perfectly lovely. As long as it's equal, what's wrong with it? That was the whole point, right? And then you get Chief Justice Warren saying, no, the separation was meant to send a signal of inferiority, that it's actually a white supremacist policy masquerading under this umbrella of equality. And Roberts then does the same thing, right? He says, well, you see, it's, you know, so long as it's colorblind, then it's absolutely equal. And that's what the 14th Amendment is about. When in fact, that is not what the 14th Amendment is about. The 14th Amendment is a clear and powerful articulation of the intention to ensure that Black people can be freed from the vestiges of slavery and made first-class citizens in our society. And he doesn't engage any of that. So he's able to cite Brown and just as Alito is able to cite Brown for the proposition that you can overturn longstanding precedent. And it allows them to say, we would not come against Brown. Who would? Everyone agrees with that opinion. It's incredibly cynical. It's incredibly distorting. And it's one of the reasons why we need to more robustly engage within the context of litigation and with the Supreme Court around the 14th Amendment, which has been distorted out of its meaning, its vision, and its intention. And I love to see Justice Jackson being someone really willing to work with the original materials, not just in her opinions. It's perfectly fine to have all your clerks, like Thomas does, go off and pull out all the stuff that's going to marshal your argument. But as we saw in the affirmative action case, she's right up there. You know, she's able to talk it in real time. And I found that incredibly powerful and important. And I think it lets the justices know they're going to have a run for their money should they try and further engage in that project. I think it's so interesting, Sherilyn, to your point about stigma, that the the majority this term was able to completely ignore the core reasoning of Brown, which was that, you know, this separation, this discrimination inflicted a true stigma on not just individuals, but an entire protected class of people, and then turned around in 303 Creative and 
essentially imposed a stigma on same-sex couples, LGBTQ people, and quite possibly all other folks who could face discrimination in the marketplace and stamping them with a badge of inferiority, as Justice Sotomayor puts it in her, I think, brilliant dissent. And the court doesn't even raise any equal protection issues at all. And I thought it was so striking that Justice Gorsuch's uh, 30-plus page opinion, you know, it's all about same-sex marriages, he doesn't even cite Obergefell. He doesn't cite the fact that this court has held that gay people in this country have a right to first-class citizenship and equality. It's like this incredibly wooden application of highly selective ideas, race neutrality, vast First Amendment freedoms to discriminate, all of these kind of projects that the majority can speak about persuasively. I mean, if you only read Robert's opinion, you'd never read Brown v. Board or heard a thing about it. You might be like, yeah, this makes sense. Like Thurgood Marshall said it, so it has to be true. And when you rip out that context, like, you know, as you as you noted, it, it, it becomes very easy to mislead. And I think if there's anything that John Roberts is really, really good at, it is simplifying a vast body of law to a point that perfectly fits his own agenda and happens to be incredibly misleading. This is it. Can I come back on one point there, though? I mean, from John Roberts, this is not new, right? I mean, one of his first major opinions on the court was the plurality opinion in Parents Involved way back in 2007, which was such a bad opinion that it prompted Justice Breyer, of all people, to take one of the sharpest shots in an oral statement that I can recall. Never in the law have so few changed so much so quickly. So I guess, you know, if the question, this wasn't the question, but if we were to frame this as, what did we learn this term that we didn't already know, right? Or, or how did things change this term? To me, it's the, it's the attitudinal piece of all of this that these disagreements are actually not in good faith. That as opposed to 16 years ago, where I think even John Roberts recognized that his view of the Seattle school and Louisville school cases wasn't necessarily the only plausible one. Now there is this attitude that like, this is the way and all other ways are problematic or invalid. And therefore trying to sort of, in some respects, delegitimize dissent. When folks are going to have their own views about how compelling the dissents are, I thought they were pretty compelling. But the notion that like, we should be sort of suggesting that these dissents are not even judicious, I think, is really what struck me about the tenor of of both the majority opinions in the big cases and how they were spun by conservatives in the days and weeks afterwards. It's almost the I'm not gaslighting, you're gaslighting. That's the moment we're at, um, you know, sort of scooping up the context that Sherilyn describes and then weaponizing it. Dahlia, can I make one other point about Roberts? Because I agree completely with Jamel about the calculations that many of the justices may have been making considering the reaction to Dobbs and considering, I actually think the most recent ethics scandals also have played a role. I, I honestly believe that the Thomas revelations and Alito's kind of unhinged responses in public places does demonstrate that Robert certainly doesn't have control of that situation. Um, I don't think there's any any way to spin it. But I do think that one of the things Roberts is solicitous of is his own reputation. And I think that's part of what we saw in the Milligan case. You know, Roberts has been derided most. There are many cases one could cite to deride Roberts' decision-making, but obviously the Shelby County versus Holder decision is probably at the top of the list. And you'll recall that it was Roberts who reassured us that, you know, but you still have Section 2. Uh, and 
Uh, I'm not sure he wants to have the pen on killing Section 2 yet. You'll recall in the Brnovich decision, he gave the pen to Justice Alito to weaken Section 2. And then here, you know, obviously he takes the pen to ensure that Section 2 still lives, at least for facts as egregious as, as the Milligan case. Amidst all of this response to the court, Roberts wants to make sure that he's not seen as, you know, talking out of two sides of his mouth, right? Killing Section 5 and saying, but you have Section 2, and then being the author of killing Section 2. I'm not sure that this is the term that he would want to set himself up for that. The Brown piece, though, is a longstanding project. And if you think about Rehnquist and think about him having clerked for Rehnquist and so forth, that is a longstanding project of a certain kind of conservative that is um, limiting Brown to its most narrow meaning and a meaning that would only have relevance in 1954 and not beyond. And so it didn't surprise me that he would offer this kind of expanded essay that attempts to gut Brown. But I do think it's an incredibly insidious project that requires some some serious pushback. Steve, can we just take a minute on the criminal docket? Because it, it didn't get a ton of attention, particularly in the end of the term. And maybe we can just, you can just riff on Jones v. Hendricks for a minute, both because I think it's incredibly important and telling uh, of other big themes, and, and also because, um, just to Sherilyn's point, this was one of Justice Jackson's big, big dissents of the term, and I wonder if it tells us something about where Justice Jackson is on these issues. Sure. I, I should say I, I have a much longer, um, wordier summary of Jones versus Hendricks coming out Monday in my newsletter. So folks might also check that out. Um, so Jones versus Hendricks is, in some respects, a much bigger deal than it seems, but it's so darn technical. The short version is if you are a federal prisoner, meaning you are convicted in federal court and you've already filed one post-conviction motion, there's a bar that Congress enacted in 1996 that makes it really, really hard to file a second or successive habeas petition, a second or successive motion for post-conviction relief, unless there's some new principle of constitutional law that the Supreme Court has articulated. The problem for federal prisoners is that unlike state prisoners, federal prisoners can also have new claims based on changes in statutory law. So, you know, the statute that a prisoner was convicted of could be repealed or it could be struck down. Um, the sentencing rules that the prisoner was sentenced under could be repealed or struck down. And the question is, when that happens, should you be entitled to relief? Everyone agrees that had this been a first petition, the prisoner in this case, Mr. Jones, would have won. The problem is that because it's a second or successive petition, Congress in 1996 effectively closed the door to using the normal mode of federal post-conviction review for this kind of statutory claim. So Jones made two arguments to the contrary. The first is he says, well, for federal prisoners, there's a safety valve. And the safety valve says if the federal statute that we're supposed to use doesn't allow us to meaningfully challenge our conviction and sentence, we can use the more sort of old school common law type habeas statute. And first, the majority rejects that and says, nope, you can't use the safety valve in context in which EDPA has specifically taken away relief. EDPA's in the 1996 statute. And then Jones says, and at the very least, you should let me use the old school habeas statute 
because otherwise there would be constitutional problems because the suspension clause says I have a right to not be held unlawfully and everyone agrees that I'm being held unlawfully. And the court says, eh, no, you don't. The suspension clause doesn't apply to this kind of post-conviction claim. What is remarkable about Jones versus Hendricks is sort of two different features of it. The first is the complete lack of any humility or acknowledgement on the majority's part that this is a grotesque result, even if you think it's compelled by the statutes. And oh, by the way, Justice Jackson's dissent explains why it's not compelled by either statute. But I would at least want to say, even if I thought this result was compelled, hey, Congress, you should fix this, right? Like, you know, if you, if you actually think it is unjust to have federal prisoners who are being held unlawfully with no remedy, you might acknowledge that, even if you think your hands are tied. No one in the majority did. But second, and this is the other piece of this, the way that the court tackles the statutory interpretation takes these statutes so completely out of context as to render them almost unrecognizable. The history of the federal post-conviction remedy is clear beyond any peradventure that Congress did not mean to make it narrower than what was available to state prisoners. And yet that's the result of Jones versus Hendricks. And so, you know, it's not going to get a lot of attention because it's very technical, because it only applies to federal prisoners. But the net result is that this decision means hundreds, if not thousands of federal prisoners going forward are going to have no remedy if the Supreme Court or Congress comes along and wipes out the basis for their conviction or sentence in a context in which the Supreme Court just eight years ago said state prisoners would have a remedy. There's a case called Montgomery versus Louisiana, actually from 2016, not 2015, where the court holds that in this exact scenario, a state prisoner has a right to go to state court to get some kind of relief, even if the state court says it doesn't. He has a constitutional right to go to state court. Federal prisoners aren't allowed to go to state court. So it's just, it is such a grotesquely mean decision that the fact that the majority couldn't even bring itself to acknowledge that, I think, is really, really a bad look and one that I think Justice Jackson makes a lot of well-deserved hay out of in her dissent. This is um, one of several cases this term where the majority essentially declared that it could read Congress's mind, right? And as you pointed out, like Justice Thomas's majority opinion in Jones versus Hendricks just sort of declares what he thinks Congress must have intended. But as you note, like this is obviously not what Congress intended. In fact, the way this statute is written may well have been an error. Like Congress was sort of copying and pasting previous iterations of the statute and forgot to include this key phrase. But, but, but Mark, it's worse than that, right? So, so the 1996 statute was an error, right? When Congress did not allow yeah. federal prisoners to bring statutory claims, that was just an oversight. Right. The worst part is that the original statute, the 1948 statute for federal prisoners, allows for errors. It has a safety valve entirely so that if something goes wrong in the future— we will be preserving access to meaningful judicial review. And Justice Thomas's response to that is, nah, that's not really what Congress meant. Yeah, and I think one person who has written persuasively about how this was an error was then-Judge Amy Coney Barrett on the Seventh Circuit, who has an opinion where she points out that this exact 
trap that you just described was almost certainly due to a congressional oversight. But she has no written opinion in Jones. She totally remains silent. And I think, like, this is a pattern for her. During the student debt argument, she kept really grilling the attorneys for the red states about how Missouri could claim to be representing the student loan servicer created by the state when the student loan servicer wasn't there and had no interest in participating in this case or repealing Biden's program. And she was really tough. I mean, it was this was her, like, law professor side coming out, sort of, like, grilling a student, like, why isn't this a agency here? Why are you claiming to speak for them? And yet, in the opinion, you know, she has a whole side concurrence about another issue, but she doesn't even acknowledge this point that she made blazingly clear at arguments. And it just, it feels to me like she's trying to balance these two sides of herself, where there's like the the technical-oriented law professor side, and then there's also the I have an agenda I want to accomplish side. And like, Killing habeas relief is one of those agenda items. And so I guess she just went for it. Can I say two quick things? Because now I'll get out of the way and and let Sherilyn and Jamel tell me what I missed, because I'm sure I did. So first on Barrett, I mean, I have found her to be remarkably unpredictable based on oral argument, where, I mean, the SB8 case was another good example of that. Um, where I walked out of the SB8 case convinced that she was actually with the Democratic appointees on being able to sue state court clerks. And not only is she not with them, but she doesn't explain where she went. Ditto the student loan case. I mean, Mark, I was sure there were four votes against, you know, Missouri standing after argument. I wasn't sure there were five. And there ended up being three. The second thing I'll just say, and this is this is maybe a broader point that's less about the justices and more about the lawyers. One point about Jones versus Hendricks that I feel compelled to say because of what my full-time job is, is it was also an enormous strategic mistake by the lawyers who brought the case, which is the Supreme Court clinic at UVA. There was a circuit split on this question. There had been a circuit split for a long time, and no one wanted to take the circuit split to the court because they feared that this was what was going to happen. And so I think there's also a lesson here unrelated to the justices about how the the dominance of the current majority ought to be having a, a, a broader impact on strategic and tactical decisions by lawyers. We're going to take a quick break. Let's get back now to our term wrap-up with Sherilyn Eiffel, Jamel Bowie, Steve Vladek, and of course, my co-pilot, Mark Joseph Stern. So I, I want to turn, if we can, to the thing we, we touched on at the very beginning, and then we've sort of um, ignored because we want to talk about the merits docket. Uh, but that is this, you know, deep, deep scrutiny of the justices, particularly Justice Thomas and Alito, um, their activities off the bench. And I think I want to ask kind of two questions, and you, you can parse it the way you want, but maybe we'll start with Jamel. One is, you know, what do we take uh, from the justice's response to finally being subject to meaningful scrutiny by investigative reporters, not the Supreme Court press corps. And what does it tell us about how, and I I know this goes to the arrogance point that both Steve and Jamel have made, but about their sense of what justices deserve from the public and the press. I mean, it's such a, a phenomenally interesting moment in exactly the same way the Chief Justice's refusal to come before Congress. It's so revelatory that suddenly when you have actual shoe leather reporting saying, um, 
yeah, this is what the wine cost, and this is what the flight cost, and the affronted sense that nobody has any business picking through what they do. So maybe maybe if you can start, Jamel, just I think we need to do a better job of knitting together the sort of ethics revelations this year and what's happening on the merits docket. To go to something that Sherilyn said a little earlier, I, I think what it demonstrates, first of all, is just how profoundly unprepared the justices are for serious scrutiny and serious politicized scrutiny. Alito especially. I mean, Alito seems like a very thin-skinned man, but his decision to run to the Wall Street Journal editorial page and write this sort of screed defending himself, to me, is it shows all the hallmarks of someone who just is not prepared for any kind of of real scrutiny of his actions. Thomas's stonewalling, not prepared for any real scrutiny of his actions. And I think this is something that reporters should pursue. I think when you have uh, subjects whose reaction to your investigation arguably makes everything look worse, the proper response is to just keep investigating and keep looking into what's happening. Because I think there's probably simply more there. It's like, it's just, it's clear to me, at least, that what we have done is sort of scratch the surface of a culture, a culture of, if not influence dealing and influence peddling, then a culture that does really hinge on giving justices access to the some of the wealthiest people in the country and people with like very, you know, well-defined political and financial interests. I wrote about this and my whole take about it was that like this is all sort of like an attempt to build social ties between justices and sort of like the funders of the conservative legal movement to kind of ensure that the relevant justices will be a little less likely to exercise the independence that like, I think can come naturally in that kind of position. That aside, I, I do think one takeaway is that these are people who have been or are so accustomed to operating with kind of impunity that they're just not accustomed to any kind of scrutiny and simply cannot handle it. I think you know, as far as how this relates to their decisions, I mean, I think Roberts's final remarks in the student loan opinion is a testament to sort of how unprepared they're all for scrutiny. I, I, I think we've already mentioned this, but sort of a remarkable statement, right? Like, you know, hey, we're, we're real judges. We're not making stuff up. We're not, we're not, we're not political. Like this sort of special pleading um, in response to criticism, to me, again, is, is another sign of, of how unprepared they are for scrutiny, uh, either investigative or political scrutiny, and how that I think is if there's if there's any kind of on the left, there's lots of sort of trying to figure out how to respond to the problem of this court. Barring something highly unusual, we're going to have this very conservative right wing activist court for a while. So what what do you do about that? How do you respond to that? And I think what advantage opponents of this court have is that these are mostly a bunch of cloistered judges and legal academics who are not prepared for actual political hardball. And that is sort of your great advantage, right? 
the fact that these aren't a bunch of former politicians or lawmakers or legislators or people with any real political experience means that you can bring that to bear when it comes to trying to pressure them. And I kind of think it's already working a little bit. Um, but I think that's 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 like the, the that's like the the soft underbelly of this court that they're, for lack of a better term, a bunch of nerds. Jamil, I couldn't agree more. Except I would, <laughs> I would say when you talk about them not being prepared for scrutiny. I mean, remember, remember Justice Alito at the State of the Union, right? Where you know President Obama said something about you know the court's decision, and 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 you know, and the crowd roared, and he mouthed, "Not true." Right. He could, couldn't contain himself. And then he never appeared again. Right. At a, <laughs> at a, uh, uh, you know, a state of the union. When you talk about being thin skinned and not prepared for any kind of criticism, it's not just like a ProPublica reporter going through your records and finding out where you went on vacation. It's like any kind of scrutiny or sense of criticism. And I think that part of it is and, and I'm, I'm not sure this is true for Alito and Thomas, who I think are in a different category. They're a little bit kind of more Trumpian because what they've done is take a norm and distorted it. I think someone like a Roberts came up in the period in which the norm was that Supreme Court justices did take gifts and did go on vacations that were paid for. I mean, Chief Justice Warren went to Bohemian Grove. He had vacations paid for, you know, it would be a, a couple of days at a house in Maine. You know, it, it wouldn't exactly be the Harlan Pro, you know, yacht and helicopter club. But I think that was part of a tradition that they feel they've inherited. But the presumption was is that, is that it would be handled responsibly, that it would be something that would be within the guardrails that many of us would think of as being at least slightly appropriate. And you have justices who have run with it. And of course, being without any questioning and, and without Congress exercising any muscular power has meant that as it has gone on, more and more justices have gotten into it. And it, we have relied on the personal norms and ethics of individual justices, like Justice Kagan not accepting the bagel and locks from her, you know, her former students or former friends. That's what we've been relying on. And, um, and so I do think, and I agree with Jamel, that more than ever, this is a time for Congress to step up and assert its power. Maybe it didn't have to in the past because we had, but in the main, justices who were willing to hew to the norm. Um, but we don't now. It's just like with Trump. You know, all of these ways that we had expected presidents to behave, we had one who didn't. And, and, and you have to respond to that with law and with guardrails. And so I think that's where we are with this court. And this is something for us also to think about, by the way, going forward in confirmation hearings. How do you probe whether a potential justice has the kind of temperament and has the kind of ethical core to be in this incredible position where you aren't going to have people checking your work every day, you know, where you're not going to have people breathing over your neck, where you're largely independent. And I don't think that we are testing for that in the confirmation process. Even if the outcome wouldn't change, that should be exposed at the confirmation hearings. And I think we saw a lot obviously exposed with Thomas, and we saw a lot exposed with Alito if you wanted to see it. These are all the lessons we should be pulling from this, that it's a new day and that we now need to tighten up on a system that has basically functioned by the honor code. This is Steve. So I think Sherilyn's exactly right, but I think there's one more piece of the problem, which is polarization. And 
you know, it wasn't so long ago. I mean, Sherilyn mentioned Justice Fortas earlier in the show. You know, remember that Fortas basically was pushed out by Chief Justice Earl Warren, by someone on his team, in a way that, of course, we wouldn't expect to happen today. Keep in mind, this is a court that for the first time in its history, but since 2010, has had justices who are divided in perfect parity with the with the party of the president who appointed them. And so I think part of the problem is that there is a mindset that has become so pervasive out there that any attack on the conservative court, any critique of the court is just an effort by liberals or progressives or Democrats to undermine the court. And I, you know, I encounter this a lot in my own work where I'm like, no, I'm here to save the court, people. And they're like, no, you're not. You're acting in bad faith. And I think the problem is that that suspiciousness makes any reform harder because it means you need the leading voices to be on the same team. This is why, for example, I think it was so important that Chief Justice Roberts was a critic of some of the other conservatives' behavior on the shadow docket. I think that actually had probably at least as big an impact, if not more of an impact, than anything that ever happened publicly. But it also suggests that like, part of the problem here is that there are not visible conservatives, whether on the bench or off of it, who are raising any institutional alarm bells about the court at its current juncture. And to me, like when I think about how do we get out of this rut, how do we move the ball forward, it has to be some recognition that there are institutional problems with the way the court is behaving and with the way at least some of the justices are behaving that are bad for the court, even if you like what the court is doing today and tomorrow, and that it's in the court's interests, especially the conservative's interest, to remedy. So I really think it's about sort of shifting the conversation away from how Democrats, progressives, liberals can sort of fight back against the court and toward how we can actually de-partisanize conversations about institutional reform so that they're not just perceived as the left attacking the right and actually maybe perceived as trying to restore a healthier balance of power among all the institutions of our government. Steve, it's so interesting because I think um, what all three of you have said has kind of crystallized in my mind the critique I've had of court coverage, which is that we do cover the confirmation hearings as political events. And, you know, what that does is it means the justices who are coming up from the lower court bench or from academia are just horrified because they're not used to being covered as political figures. It's a little bit my explanation for why some of the justices, notably Thomas and Justice Alito, have such lingering fury about how they were treated at their confirmation hearings because they weren't treated like that as judges and they don't intend to be treated like that as justices. And it, you know, has huge impacts on how they then do their job. But it is this interesting problem of if the only moment you're going to treat this as a political kind of catfight is it the most partisan, most, you know, us versus them, my team, your team moment, which is their confirmation hearings. This is you sort of reap what you sow, uh, to, to paraphrase Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, Mark, do you have a final thought I think I would just add that, as Steve points out, as Sherilyn noted, we're going to have this court for a really long time. And we're just at the very beginning of learning how these guys respond to scrutiny, to public scrutiny, to investigations. Within months of this serious reporting happening, Sam Alito had already published 
an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal complaining about how unfairly he was going to be treated in a forthcoming story and making the not-quite-compelling argument that an airplane is a facility under the ethics law that he brazenly violated. I think that we're also going to start seeing a lot of lower court judges who are auditioning for the Supreme Court right now pick sides in this battle and contribute to what Steve is describing, which is this argument that any criticism of of the conservative justices must be an attempt to delegitimize the court. Like, uh, you know, anything that that suggests they aren't perfect angels, uh, brilliant brains in a in a glass jar who are simply applying the law as God and James Madison intended, that all of that is pure defamation. And I think the public is going to see that and have some questions to ask about it. I mean, you and I and the people on this call have spent enough time at judicial conferences and read enough opinions and watched enough oral arguments to know that these guys don't always conduct themselves quite as uprightly as they'd like to believe. But it feels like the wheels are coming off the bus a little bit now. And I'm just very curious, moving into next term, seeing some big swings from the lower courts, which we didn't even get a chance to talk about, really, but some of these Fifth Circuit judges and district court judges in Texas, like really building up kind of like an army to defend the honor of the justices who are most at fault for egregious misconduct and how that affects the court's popularity, how it affects its polling, how it affects its power and legitimacy. Um, It just feels like we're at the dawn of a new era and we're going to have a lot more to say about this when we circle back to have another breakfast table talk this time next year. It's John Roberts trying to stuff all that in a box for as long as he possibly can. It's an amazing thought experiment about how long he can quell that. Jamel Bowie writes brilliantly for the New York Times. Sherilyn Eiffel is the newly appointed head of Howard University's Vernon E. Jordan Endowed Chair in Civil Rights. Professor Stephen Vladek teaches at the University of Texas Law School and is author of the New York Times bestseller, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. To all of you and to my co-pilot, Mark. Mark Stern, thank you very, very much for ushering out the 2022 term with us today. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. It's also a wrap for our Opinion Palooza season of nonstop Amicus extras as the Supreme Court careened to the end of the term. Thank you so much for listening in, and thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. A quick reminder that our bonus content will be going back behind the paywall soon. So if you haven't yet, now is a great time to sign up for Slate Plus membership. Go to slate.com slash amicus plus for details. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio at Slate and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus next week as we slide into our summer season of biweekly episodes exploring books and writing about the court basically digging into some big, big ideas we just didn't have time to process in the rock'em sock'em of the term. So do join us for that. Until then, take good care. When you visit Arizona... 
Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.